Today's scripture reading is from James 5, 13 through 16. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. Thank you, Hannah. Go ahead and open your Bibles to James chapter 5. The verses that she just read are where we find ourselves. And believe it or not, we are starting to wrap up our series through the book of James. We've got uh, three more weeks today, plus two more, and then we'll do a wrap-up week at the end. And then you may be wondering, where do we go from there? Well, we're going to take two weeks to focus on our first core value, which is word-centered. So we're going to do a two-week mini-series on the Bible And I'm very excited about it because we're going to answer questions such as, is the Bible still relevant to us today? Is it uh, it authoritative for our lives? In what way does it speak to us today? What does it mean for us to be a word-centered church? How do we live out that core value, which is, by the way, the very first of our five core values? So two weeks that we're going to cover some of those questions. Then we're going to begin a study in the Psalms. And so all throughout the summer, we're going to go through Psalms. We obviously won't be able to cover all 150 Psalms in that period of time, but we'll choose one Psalm each week and dive deep into that. So I think it's going to be a a wonderful summer. What a great time of year to just sort of relax, hopefully, and allow the Psalms, kind of the message of encouragement, but also the, the wholehearted, whole emotional weight of those Psalms to... Uh, have their impact on us as we go through the summer. Well, these final eight verses in James that we start today, so we're going to cover a few of them today and then next week and the following week. We have eight verses left in the whole book. The final eight verses seem to jump around a bit topically, but I believe they're held together by a common theme. And the theme is this. It's the theme of active faith. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, I thought that was the theme of the whole book of James. It is. That's why we've called our series Act of Faith. But there's something unique about these last eight verses. It's almost as if, you know, James has sort of built the whole book to sort of say, and look at how the intersection of God's plan and our work and plan all comes together. So another way you might think about the theme of these last eight verses is the intersection between God's work and our work. We call that intersection active faith. So I'll take you back to our fall series. We talked about wholehearted life in Jesus as our mission statement and our vision for Fellowship Bible Church. If if you remember, there's four, you know, the the Bible uses uh, the heart, the word heart to talk about your inner person. And there's kind of four quadrants of the heart or four areas of the heart that we talk about, your thoughts, your emotions, your desires, and your choices. And and those are scattered. They're sort of disconnected Uh, through Jesus. They get put back together. So the picture of the heart with the cross in the center represents someone who is finding wholehearted life in Jesus. And we've talked about what does it look like someone finding wholehearted life in Jesus? Well, there are four characteristics of wholehearted life in Jesus. They each correspond to those four parts of the heart. So your thoughts get transformed to become a renewed mind. That's the first, a renewed mind. Your emotions, your emotional life gets transformed such that your relationships 
begin to become healthy. Healthy relationships with God, first and foremost, with one another, and even a healthy relationship with yourself and your new identity in Christ. That's what healthy relationships is all about. Your deep desires, which is that third part of the heart, that gets transformed and you begin to taste a satisfied soul. That's the third characteristic. A satisfied soul is your deep desires are met through Christ. And then last but not least, where we've been in the last few months, an active faith. Here's how we've defined an active faith. As God speaks to us, we hear and we act, living out what we believe through immediate and tangible steps of obedience. So the part of your heart or the part of your inner self that makes choices, that part begins to live out what God speaks to you through immediate and tangible steps of obedience. That's active faith. What's interesting about active faith, if you think about it scripturally, it's not ultimately you that's doing the acting. It's God that's doing the acting through you. And that's what James is going to focus on in these last eight verses. How is it that when we say God's doing something, oftentimes he's doing it through people? Is it people doing it or is it God doing it? Yes. Yes, because much of what God does in the world, he does through people. And I want to dig into that just enough to kind of blow your mind a little bit because I think it's fascinating if you think about it. God could accomplish his will on earth in any number of ways. He chooses to use human beings as his primary agent to accomplish his will. I think that's remarkable. Let me give you some examples. He chose to write his word through human authors inspired by the Holy Spirit. He could have done that a different way. He chose human agency. The Spirit speaking to them. They wrote the text. We have it today. Second example, he communicates the gospel all the way to this day. How? Through human, bre- human beings. How will they hear if someone doesn't tell them, the scripture says? Whom has God given language to? Whom has God given vocal cords to? Whom has God given brains to read the word and teach the word? Human beings. Many of you in this room are teachers in small groups with children in different contexts. Hopefully all of us are at some degree as we evangelize and share our faith with others. Here's a third example. God works compassion and justice for those in need. He does. How does he do it? Usually through people. Men and women who serve and love and give in the name of Jesus Christ. That's how God chooses to care for the poor. That's how God chooses to care for those without. Last example. When it comes to the church, God leads his people by gifting some with specific leadership gifts and callings. So we have church officers, which we're going to talk about today. We got a church staff. We'll touch on that a little bit today. But that's just the scratching the surface. Primarily, it's through men and women who volunteer in ministries that are the fuel for this church. Many of you in this room, hopefully all of you over time, will give your energy and time to serving Christ in this body. So you see, God is doing the work in Fellowship Bible Church. How is he doing it? Through human beings that are led by his spirit. Isn't this fascinating? I might be the only one geeking out on this, but I think it's really, really interesting. God does much of his work, maybe most of his work, through human beings, people like you and me. In fact, as he's going through these last eight verses, he's going to get to this verse on Elijah. We're not going to cover it today. Lloyd will cover it next week. But he's like, think about Elijah, who had a nature just like ours. It's almost like we tend to think about these biblical heroes as different than us. James is going to say, no, 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 no. These are human beings, just like us. Just like us. God does most of his work in the world through human beings, just like us. Now, the most simple form, if you think about it, of God working 
through human agency might be prayer. Prayer is a fascinating topic. And that's where we're going to begin in this text. Look at verse 13 with me. The concept of prayer. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. You know, isn't this interesting? You know, God could say a number of different things. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he is to do it's like, go get your act right, right together and go do, 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 and then maybe your suffering will be relieved. Or, you know, if, if any, is anyone cheerful? Well, don't be cheerful, you know. <laughs> go, like, go out and do some work. It'll make you, you know, uncheerful. No, no, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying if you're suffering, you are to pray. If you're cheerful, you are to pray. What do you mean? It says cheerful, you are to sing. Yeah, sing praises, form of prayer. Let your emotional expression overflow into praise, into worship, which is a form of prayer. In this verse, James is using two opposite extremes of life, suffering on one end, gladness or being cheerful on the other, to remind us that God wants us to invite him into the whole human experience. It's like he's saying sometimes you suffer, sometimes you're glad, and sometimes you're just in the middle, you know, no man's land. Throughout all of it, you are to invite him into it because God wants to be an active part of your life. He's inviting you to invite him into the whole spectrum of human experience because he desires wholehearted life for you. Now, at its most basic level, I think prayer is the intersecting point between God's will and our will. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. The model prayer that he gave, and we call it the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, et cetera, et cetera. The heart of that prayer is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is the intersecting point between our will and God's will. Think about Jesus' own prayers, particularly in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows what's about to come with his crucifixion, all that he's gonna go through. He says, Father, if it's possible, take the cup from me. Like, I don't, I don't really wanna go through this in my, my humanness. I'm afraid. But your will be done, not my will be done. That's what Jesus was praying at his most difficult hour. Prayer is the intersecting point between God's will and our will. If you think about it, it's amazing that God invites us and even commands us to pray. Take a, a, a theological deep dive with me for a minute. Some of you, your brain doesn't go here, and so this will be new. But others of you, like me, you're just like, yeah, I, I've thought about that, and, and my brain is constantly scrambled because I can't solve the riddle. And, and here's the riddle. If God knows what we're going to pray before we're, we pray it, and God is sovereign, he's going to do what he's going to do, why pray? Why pray? Why bother? Do our prayers actually change God? Like, do they make any difference at all? Why pray? He knows the thoughts in your head before you even think them. And he's sovereign. There are several answers to this in Scripture. Maybe none of them are completely to our little puny, you know, ant-sized brains. I mean, ant-sized compared to God. Comparison here. Maybe none of them fully satisfy because some of this is mystery. But one of the answers that I find throughout the Bible that's perhaps the most simple but maybe the most mind-bending answer of all is this. It seems that we pray because God wants to act and he chooses to act through prayer. Like that's, that's interesting. Let me say it a different way. We pray because God desires to act, he wants to act, and our prayers somehow activate his will on earth. 
So when Jesus says, you pray for God's will to be done on earth, it's not just like, just so you can think the right thoughts. No, no, no. God's will, God wants his will to be done on earth, and he has ordained or designed that it's the prayers of people asking for his will to be done on earth is part of the way that he will unleash his will on earth. Isn't that interesting? Luke finds it interesting. At least I got one with me. That's good. Amen. Amen. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. We pray because God wants to act and our prayers somehow activate his will on earth. In other words, prayer works because God answers prayer. He responds to it. Our prayers matter. I think there's other reasons to pray as well, but throughout scripture, you just seem to see this over and over again. I can't explain it all. God works through prayer. Even though he knows you're gonna pray. Even though he's the one that calls you to pray and stirs in you the prayer. Even though he wants, he's like he wants to answer your prayer before you even pray it. He calls you to pray it and you pray it and he answers it. All right, let's move, let's move on because this gets more interesting. So he goes in verse 13, James does, from this, this kind of general, like in every sphere of life, if you're suffering or if you're cheerful, everything in between, invite God into it in, in, your, in your prayer life. Now he's gonna go to a very specific circumstance of life that all of us can identify with. Look at it, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Pause there for a minute. We'll finish the rest of the verse in a second. Don't raise your hand if you're sick. But some of you are. Like, you know, I don't want you to raise your hand because then people will stay away from me for the rest of the time. You know, it's like, you know, hopefully you're not contagious, but some of you are sick. If you're not sick right now, you either recently were or you will be soon. I mean, that's just true. All of us, to a certain degree, were ill physically because li- literally at the cellular level, our, our cells are, are, are like in the process of winding down. They're deteriorating. And there'll be a point, if Jesus doesn't come back first, there'll be a point for all of us that we will breathe our last breath. And physically, there'll be no more life in us. So we can all identify with this. Is anyone among you sick? Well, what are you to do when you're sick? Well, one thing you are to do is, let's finish the verse. Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Keep going to verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. This just got more interesting. In verse 13, James is saying, you pray. In verses 14 and 15, he's saying, ask other people to pray for you. And not just any other people. That'll be later. A specific other people, a group, a team, the elders of the church. He says, call for the elders of the church. It's almost as if, this is fascinating. It's almost as if the Spirit is saying this through James. God wants to do some work in you through them. In some specific cases, at least here in James 5, we see these specific cases. In some specific cases, there is some healing that God wants to do in you. And he's chosen the agency of the prayers of the elders of the church to accomplish his will on earth in you. I can't explain all of that. I'm just teaching you what the text says. Now, let's step back for a minute and look at and talk about elders. And, and I wanna you know, kind of go up to about 10,000 feet and look at the new, what the New Testament says about elders very, very briefly. Not gonna hit all the passages, but elders are given to a local church to serve that church through leadership, teaching, 
and prayer. If you want some more information about that, you should have gotten one of these when you came in. There's an FAQ in here. First question, or actually the first paragraph, talks more about eldership with all the relevant passages. But what I want you just to hear briefly right now is elders are called to serve you. Like that's, I'm one of the elders. Lloyd's one of the elders. We've got a couple other staff members that are elders. And then we've got six non-staff. We call them lay elders that are elders. We are here to serve you. How are we to serve you? Through leadership, through teaching and prayer. Do all the elders teach? In some contexts they do, but two of us primarily are the ones that preach Sunday morning. But these guys are teaching in other contexts in marriage ministry and small group ministry and one-on-one, et cetera. What else do elders do? Well, they lead. How do we lead? As a team. We sit around a table. We wrestle through decisions. We look at things. We plan because God has asked us to. What else do we do? We pray. We get on our knees, figuratively, sometimes literally. We wrestle through things. We wrestle through leadership decisions through prayer, and we wrestle for you on behalf of Jesus Christ in prayer. Every prayer request that's ever submitted to this church is prayed for by our elder team. We spend a significant chunk of each of our elder meetings praying for you. Elders are given to a local church to serve the church through leadership, through teaching, and through prayer. Now, are they the only ones in the church that teach? No way. That pray? No way. That lead? No way. So there's clearly other people in the church, other staff members, other volunteers who do those things as well. But the Bible, the pattern of scripture calls specifically for a group of men to shepherd the church through leadership, through teaching, and through prayer. There's a clear responsibility on the elders of the church to be servants and shepherds of that congregation. Um, Here in James 5, we see prayer being emphasized as one of the things that elders do, one of the most important things that elders do. Now, I want to say this, and and this is such an important point. Who is the leader of the church? That's right. Yeah. And, And that's just not the universal church, this church, okay? It's not me. It's not Lloyd. It's not even me and Lloyd. It's not even me and Lloyd and the whole elder team. It's not even me and Lloyd and the elder team and the staff. It's not even me and Lloyd and the elder team and the staff and all the volunteers. The leader of the church is Jesus Christ. Amen is right. And how does Jesus lead the church? Through the Holy Spirit, working through spirit-led men and women. Do you see how the human agency intersects with God's work? I can't explain it all. But this is how God accomplishes all kinds of things on earth, including shepherding his church. Now, these verses that we just read are a fascinating example of God choosing to do work through human agency. Uh, It's not, let's put verse 15 back on the screen. Notice it's not the elders that heal the person. I don't want you to think that. The elders are not in the business of healing. There's no special supernatural healing ability that we have because we're elders. Who does the healing? The Lord will raise him up. So it's clear from James 5, the healing is the Lord's. However, interestingly, how does God choose to do that work? Look earlier in the verse. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one is sick. Do you see the beautiful dynamic tension, the both and? Is it the prayer offered by the men and women or is it the Lord that heals? Yes, is the answer. Kind of like two sides of a coin. See what I did there? 
Faith and works. How is faith and works playing out in this example? Faith and works, let's talk about the, the perspective of the person that's sick. Number one, they have to have faith to believe God can heal them and may want to heal them. That's the faith part. What's the work part? Call the elders of the church. It takes faith to do that. Faith and works together, active faith. Now let's talk about the elders' perspective. They have to believe God can heal and may want to heal in this particular case. That's the faith. And so they show up and pray. They go to the person's house or the person comes to them, however that uh, works. And it's kind of a case-by-case basis with our elder team. And we pray in faith. And we pray. Now God's gonna do what God's gonna do. And sometimes he heals. And sometimes he chooses not to heal at that very moment. But when he calls us to pray, we pray. And we entrust the results to God. And we pray believing and knowing he's in charge of that human body. He's in charge of that human soul. Do you understand? This is how active faith is lived out. I can't explain all of it. We want to live obedient to the scripture. Let me brief, talk briefly about the oil uh, because people tend to be interested in this. It's not magical healing potion. There are two possible connotations in the original text. I don't think you have to choose. I think it's kind of a both and. The first is this oil in that day was, was seen to be very medicinal. It has practical implications. It has um, healing and soothing implications. It's very practical. And some of you in the room are like, still is today, right? All the essential oil people have been waiting for me to get to this text. <laughs> and now you're like, preach it. Okay, well, here it is. Preach it. There's some practical soothing, even healing, medicinal components of oil. But notice the emphasis is not on the oil. The emphasis is on the prayer. The, the oil is kind of the supporting place. Now, by the way, God heals people through all kinds of means, sometimes supernaturally. Sometimes he heals them through good medicine and trained and skilled nurses and doctors. But don't ever believe that's not God doing the work. Who gave the, the, who created the earth with the ingredients needed to make medicine? God did. Who gave the intelligence and the brain power for human beings to figure out how to mix things together and create medicine? God did. And of course, we can abuse all that. That's why we need to be led by the Spirit in all of our work, not just church work, but medicine. And I, we can talk about all spheres of life. We're called to steward the earth. Very interesting theological implications. But back here to the oil, if you're wondering, does our elder team use oil to this day? The answer is yes. I don't know if that weirds some of you out. Like, we're not going around like throwing it on people or anything like that. But in certain cases, in this context, someone contacts us and says, I'm sick, would you pray for me? Oftentimes, we're gonna have, we're gonna have some oil. And you know, it's not gonna be weird. What we're gonna do is we're gonna explain to them very carefully. It is not the oil that has the power. The oil represents the spirit of God. And that's the second context. So there's was, there was a medicinal, practical context that the, that the elders were called to anoint someone with oil. Then there's a spiritual context. The oil all throughout the Old and New Testaments represents the presence of God. And so we'll typically take just a little bit of oil and we'll put that on a person's head, you know, or some, you know, sometimes on their, their hands. And, and, and we'll just say, this oil is not magical. It's just oil. But it reminds you and it represents the presence of God. He is here, and he's in you through the Holy Spirit if you've trusted Christ. And he's in us through the Holy Spirit because we've trusted Christ. So we acknowledge the presence of God, and we acknowledge that it's him and his power and his presence that is able to heal. And what I love about that oil is later on they'll go home, and they'll keep smelling it. They'll lay down at night, if, you know, and they'll, they'll, they'll be drifting off to sleep. They'll still be smelling that oil, and they'll be reminded, God's with me through his spirit. God's able to heal me. 
It's his power. It's his presence that the oil points to. Now, I want you to know that you can call on the elders of this church. These men, except for me and Lloyd, are primarily behind the scenes. You don't see them a lot. Some of you are wondering even who, who are our elders. We've, we've learned that we need to make these men more visible to you. Now, they don't naturally want to be because they're under shepherds. You know, they're perfectly content to serve you off stage. But we also know that you need to know your elders. So in the last 12 months or so, we've gone to some effort to make the elder team more visible to you. One of the ways we've done that is through elder-led prayer. We've done that a couple of times. We're going to keep doing it. Most of you have not yet been. We can just tell by the size of the audience. We don't have a ton of people at elder-led prayer. But we hope over time more of you will come. It's not weird, you know. We're not going to douse everybody with oil that comes in or anything like that. It's really not so much to even pray for you, although there's a designated time at each one of those for you to come forward if you want to be prayed for. It's for us as a body to pray together. And guess who's going to lead it? The elders. You know, it's not a great branding title. It's like, what should we call this gathering? How about elder-led prayer? It's like, oh, nobody's going to come to that. But we call it that because that's what it is. It's prayer led by the elder team. And we want you all to know the elders of this body are the chief prayers, and they're going to lead us in prayer. And that's what those nights are all about. You're going to have an opportunity today to meet three new elder candidates. I'll introduce them in a few minutes. And then also we'll have a little reception in the restore space after the service to not get to, not just to get to know them and their wives, but also get to know our current elder team and their wives, most of whom are here today. We want you to know your elders. I'm gonna come back to elders in just a minute. Let me just say, if you would like prayer, you can call the church or you can email the church, or you can just come grab one of us and talk too. Let me give you an email address. We'll put it on the screen. This email address goes directly to all of our elders. It doesn't get filtered through anyone. Just goes straight to our elder team. We've got 11 right now on our elder team. There's five staff and six non-staff elders. If you'll send the prayer request there, we will get in touch with you. We'll pray for you. And if you wanna be prayed for, you can come. We'll come to you if needed, and we will pray for you. I'll come back to eldering in just a minute. Let me, let me first say this on verse 16. We'll finish the text um, because there's some so what here in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So in case you needed a reminder, Verse 16 makes it clear that it's not just the elders of the church that God works through. It says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so you may be healed. So it's like, you pray to God. When you're sick, ask the elders to pray for you. And now in this context, we're talking about spiritual sickness and struggle and that we all have. Part of being courageously real, men and women, is to build relationships of trust with men and women in this body do small groups, other means, and say, you know what? I need help. Would you pray for me? I'm gonna, I'm gonna share this with you because I need prayer. And I know that doesn't come easy, but we're clearly commanded in verse 16 to confess our sins one to another and to pray for one another so that we may be 
healed. I think the context here is could still be physical healing, but it also healing in all kinds of other ways because it's related to confess your sins. Are there cases that physical disease or illness is caused by sin? There are cases in scripture where that's true. And so we can never dismiss that that's a possibility. But Jesus also made it clear that there's not a one-to-one correspondence. Just because you're sick doesn't mean it's unconfessed sin. But we wanna make sure as we live confessionally with one another and as we confess our sins first to God and also to one another, that it's an opportunity for us to live clean for us to live whole and then let God do his work in and through us. I think the confess your sins to one another context is this. Live closely with one another. Build relationships of trust with one another so you can share your struggles so people can pray specifically for you and activate the work that God may want to do in your struggle through their prayers. I can't explain it all It's right here in the text. We need to take this seriously. Now, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much is a wonderful sentence and a wonderful sentence to close this message on. Please know that in this particular context, this is not male inclusive only. In fact, you know, all the pronouns in the original text of scripture, um, essentially all of them, most, most all of them were written in the masculine pronoun. So the role of the Bible translator and interpreter is to determine by context if he's talking about literal men only or if he's talking about people. Uh, now, the NASB oftentimes will, will go either way, oftentimes keep it in the male gender pronoun because we still use, even to this day, although less than a generation ago, we'll still use men in the sense of people. I think that's the context here. He's not just saying that the only prayers that are effective are the prayers of men. That's not what James is teaching. So virtually every other translation says prayer of a righteous person, not prayer of a righteous man. And I think that would be a good translation for this context. Righteous is not about perfection in this context. In other words, it doesn't mean once you've sinned, your prayers don't count anymore. Far from it. Righteous in this context is about someone whose conscience is clear because they've confessed their sins. That's the context of verse 16. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrased it in the message. Make this your common practice. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may live together whole and healed. The prayer of a person living right with God is something powerful to be reckoned with. So scripture actually talks about in other contexts of when there's unconfessed sin in your life, it can hinder your prayers. I can't explain all that, but scripture teaches that. So what are we to do with this? Live confessionally. What does that mean? When, when God brings sin to mind in your conscious thoughts and life, like, man, I realize I, I, I said that, I, I thought that it was wrong, or I should have said, or I should have done, and I didn't, and so it was wrong. Confess it immediately, first to God. And then as things in your life are tripping you up and you need help, you need someone to pray for you, Share it with someone else. Living out James 5, 16. Ask for help. Ask for prayer. That's how you live confessionally. To do that, you gotta have men and women in your life that you're close enough with to build a relationship with trust with. And that's why we wanna invite you into fellowship groups or small groups. Well, you'll be hearing a lot more about that late summer, early fall because it's our desire for everyone that calls Fellowship Bible Church their home, if possible to be in a community group so you can develop relationships of trust so you can live confessionally with one another.